0: If we're talking about development of communities, if we're talking about the future of regional Australia, we need these organisations and these types of community leaders to have a voice in that. And for policy makers, that's difficult, but I think we can offer tools through platforms like the Sea data platform and like this survey findings that can actually help those voices to be used and actually put into the decision-making processes. And I think that will go a long way if we can do that.
1: Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast.
2: Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age.
1: What it means for you and what it might mean for us all.
2: Natalie, thank you for being with us today. Can you tell us how you came to be the CEO of FRRR? I can indeed, and good to be with you. So I have
0: been the CEO with FRR for about six years. I actually joined that role from within FRRR. So I had been the manager for our disaster resilience and recovery programs, along with a number of social innovation-focused programs. But before that, I had had a career in pretty much solely the not-for-profit sector and pretty much solely in the small to medium-sized part of the sector. So I started out in fundraising and marketing with a background in public policy and research, which I kind of early on thought I might be able to being more influential if I were working on the NFP side um, and helping to strengthen the ability of those organisations to, you know, be impactful. The role before FRRR was in a consultancy with a group called Matrix on board, and we worked with SME, so as not-for-profits, with their organisational capacity building, so governance, um, strategy, evaluation, workforce sort of development, that kind of thing. And those organisations were, you know, Of a size that they had limited access to skilled support. So we were really a tailored, bespoke agency that was really about working with them where they were at and and getting them, I guess, their resourcing and their capacity strengthened. So that included financial services and, you know, development of back end support for them as well. So it's a
2: lifelong passion and such an incredibly interesting pathway where you would have seen a lot of change in the last maybe 15 years. Can you share with us? what the impacts have been on the not-for-profit and community sector in regional and rural Australia just on the last couple of years through the multiple crises that communities have faced?
0: I think for all of Australia, um, it has been both transformational and fundamentally disruptive. Um, you know, I think the all the parameters of knowing how to work have changed. Uh, and if we think about um Successive natural disasters and in a rural context much of Australia was drought affected um, severely drought affected for a long time um so that kind of pressure on not for profits particularly in a localized setting and a you know very localized um, organizational context um you know it's an it's just an, an immense exacerbation of pressure on those organizations to continue delivering um in, a, in an environment of both depletion of capital and resources and time um, and additional, um, you know, additional calling on those people and those services and organisations. So that that context in terms of ongoing drought, bushfires, floods, um, which have really, you know, we used to have gaps between major events and we just haven't had any gaps between. There's just literally been one after the other. And then the COVID pandemic, which obviously, is something we've never or we haven't experienced in generations here um has absolutely um shot you know at the core of the way that those organizations operate so their fundraising revenue has been completely ripped out from onto them in terms of most uh grassroots not-for-profit organizations rely on community-based fundraising whether it's events whether it's local business sponsorships that kind of thing all of that was just ripped away really quickly and in a very unstable environment where we haven't known when it would come back and if it did, in what form. So, that, you know, just really the rules of the game have fundamentally changed. And that I think is both, it both presents opportunities, clearly, as any disruption does, to really think about how we actually support thriving communities and thriving organisations in those communities. But it also calls into question some of the funding models and some of the the support mechanisms that these organizations have been required to operate onto, which are clearly, you know, they're not um, able to survive major disruption like this.
1: Natalie, I wonder, it might not be the kind of thing that many of our listeners have had direct contact with uh, these kinds of organizations in these kind of communities. I wonder if maybe you could help by describing what, you know, what these kind of organizations look like. What's the typical makeup of an organization like this? What are they doing? What kind of activities are they doing? How are they funded? you know, what is life like in these organisations, in these communities?
0: Yeah, so when I'm describing these organisations, I'm thinking about typically smaller and more remote communities. It's certainly within the larger regional centres as well, but typically, you know, the smaller and the more remote a community, um, the more of the types of organisations I'm describing exist. And so they will tend to be volunteer run. They might be Community groups, they're often not registered as charities, but they're not-for-profit, so they might have a range of roles in a community. Um, So if it's the Recreation Reserve Committee, for example, you know, that's a group of local people who are charged with the maintenance of that facility. That facility will often be the absolute core of a community. It will be where everything happens from sport but also to holding training and seminars to weddings to you know all the major events that a town might have it might be the annual show for example which brings huge um, uh, I guess social connectedness but also pride for a town and economic opportunity. you've also got the likes of arts organizations which are you know supporting people to participate in cultural activities and you know creativity got economic sort of business development groups like the chambers of commerce. So they're, you know, they're often not staffed or they might have one part-time staff or something like that. So they're very much literally the fabric of those communities. They are the people that live and breathe life there every day. They usually might be business owners or they might be employed within local businesses or they might work in local government. They will be people who typically have a bit of time on their hands so if we think about even the preschool committees that kind of thing all the the sort of early year stuff is typically run by mums sometimes dads but often mums who you know have that time in between their kids being at the playgroup or the kinder for example or you know you've got some older people so they they are really you know we describe them as the backbone and the fabric of communities they are the thing they make everything happen and nothing really happens without them so if we think about all the events that are run if we think about the, you know, everything down to the Christmas decorations that go up at the end of the year through to the, you know, the events that bring families together, the resources that help newcomers to town know what's what in the community, all of that is driven by these community groups. So they're the sorts of, you know, they're, they're quite often not well seen or understood outside um, of their communities.
1: So these are the organisations that most of us might have taken for granted if we're, you know, just enjoying the kind of, cultural activities that glue a community together, the fates, the, as you said, the recreational kind of, you know, it's sporting kind of activities and things like that. And so I'm really keen also then to know FRRR, it's the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal. Have I got rural and regional around the right way? Beautiful. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> the Foundation for rural, for rural and Regional Renewal, FRRR. Um, What is the, what's the work of FRRR like with these communities? Um, what's that engagement about? What does that look like?
0: We work nationally, and FR is really structured as a um, a mechanism for collective giving and for collaboration across philanthropy, governments, businesses and communities. and so we act as a bit of a connector and a conduit. Um, we enable money, uh, so we provide grant programs and granting opportunities, and we do focus on those hyperlocal organisations and those community-led organisations for a really wide array. Um, I suppose we think about it through a resilience lens and we think about all of the interconnections and interdependencies of what makes a community strong and vibrant, and they cross, you know, economic, social, cultural, environmental, and at the heart of it is people, obviously. So our granting programs are really targeted there. They tend to be relatively small and pretty, you know, accessible, we would say. And so we work with, you know, that collaborative sort of model to, I guess, leverage money, but also make it more accessible to those who are typically a bit locked out of philanthropy, and often either too small or um, their location and their sort of the type of their organisation would mean that they have additional barriers to accessing philanthropy, but also government funding. They're typically not of a scale or of a, a, I guess, a a model that can access that kind of funding. So we enable that. Uh, We also um, generate insights and learning uh, through all of our work. So we um, engage with about two and a half thousand organisations across the country each year. Uh, we made over 900 grants last financial year um, and through that we, we get a pretty interesting insight into what's happening at a very hyper local level um, in places that, yeah, don't often... Get a a look in. Um, So that's kind of our model, and the way we interact is um, you know, it's wide and varied. It's been entirely virtual for the last two years, but usually we try and get on the ground and um, go and sit with communities and really learn about what's happening. Um, But we've done that in different ways in the last couple of years. So our role is you know,
2: it is about a supporter, but an advocate as well and champion for their needs. And that brings us to the study, the Heartbeat of Rural Australia study, because you do have such great insight and work with so many people on the ground, hundreds of organisations. And I think i read that over the years, FRRR has granted to more than 12,000 projects around Australia, many of which are those grassroots community organisations and initiatives that you spoke of just a moment ago. Can you tell us why you wanted to do this study and uh, what the purpose is of this particular research? Thanks, Christy. It is exciting to have done this and we are
0: excited to be partnering with you on it as well. Look, it started with a recognition clearly that the last couple of years have been full of disruption. We also really believe that regional Australia is on the front line of our biggest challenges and have been on the front line of of a lot of this disruption, particularly when we think about the context of natural disasters um, followed by covid and the part about all of that is that these grassroots organisations don't tend to have a voice and they're not te- they don't tend to be recognised for the actual role and the value that they play. We see it and I think they see it, but often they miss out and we notice, particularly you know, when there's a, a major disaster, for example, we know the role they play, but they're not actually the first at the table and they should be. We felt there was a need to amplify that story and to give a platform To help those organizations a be positioned in a way that their needs could be validated and quantified at scale so we could actually play that role of a a collective voice but importantly you know actually give some practical guidance and insight into you know what is actually happening on the ground for these organizations what what have the impacts actually been at that level what are the sorts of things that would be most helpful And what can those who are seeking to partner support and walk alongside them actually able to do to help them in a way that's going to make a big difference? And so really it was a a piece about how do we use our relationships and our networks and our influence to create and support and build that data set and how do we then enable that to be used and amplified by those organisations to really help them drive their own agenda? So that was the... The genesis of it. And I think the, the findings are,
2: are really indicative of it being valuable, hopefully. And there are 640 community groups that have contributed to the survey, the majority of which are volunteer-led. So we're really talking about individuals in their local communities who wear many hats, as you mentioned earlier, at the front line, as you said, of disaster recovery, disaster relief. What does that look like for people in local communities? What are organisations doing in the recovery and during crisis? Those groups
0: are, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that those groups are both responding, but they're also recovering themselves or they're affected themselves in some ways. So they, they play a very complex role. Often the first responders, they are often... And if we think about the local neighbourhood house or the local craft group, you know, we support a lot of local women's groups, you know, quite informal community groups, but they're the trusted place for people um, when they've been affected by something. So they're often the knowledge source, the information source. They will do things like generate community news letters to make sure that information is getting out. They will do things like hold weekly morning teas for people to come and just be and talk And there might be additional support provided there, like the Red Cross might be there or whoever it might be, but they are the kind of the host often. They coordinate the local recovery centres quite often in terms of hosting them. So it might be the recreation reserve or the local hall. We provide a lot of funding for local halls to improve their facilities after disasters where they've realised that they suddenly had thousands of people to cater to and they didn't have kitchen that was fit for purpose, for example, or showers that had any hot water. So really practical things. They offer people refuge after and during. And they really support mental health and wellbeing. And it's about social connectedness often. And it's really about how people support each other and how people allow each other to have space and time in a, in an environment that they trust and know. And so it's a really, it's a big responsibility. And there are a lot of agencies wrapped around that, providing additional support in terms of counselling support and assistance with putting through, you know, relief package payments, etc. But it is those localised organisations and community groups that are holding it. In our view, that's who we really see stepping up. And the thing that happens is that they become fatigued. There's a lot, you know, especially when they're already looking after their own recovery and there's only so many people And there's a lot of pressure put on them, naturally, in terms of just the amount of work there is to do and the amount of activity there is in the early recovery, especially. And so, as time goes on, you know, we we refer to it as volunteer fatigue. It's you know, it's just this depletion of energy, and there's not not much left in the tank to top up with. And so, we're we're really concerned with how we support that as well in terms of the well-being of those community groups and people. So as much as it is about the broader community, it's about ensuring that those local people who are playing those roles are looked after as well and and have time and space to step out when they need to. So we ran a program a few years ago which was about actually funding those volunteers to be able to step out. So either fund volunteers as a paid wage uh, so that they could actually do it as a job or fund a position to backfill them so they could step away. And that's things like bookkeeping and grant acquittals and, you know, just the administrative load is enormous in this context as well.
1: Such an important cultural institution, it seems, these organisations in those communities. And uh, so important, I think, then to have that local context and to be faces in those communities that are recognised as your neighbours and your peers who are doing that work. You know, for that kind of fundamental baseline trust, if you like, of the community. So they know where to go. They know who, you know, who, who organizes this particular support service or where they can find help with, you know, getting their feet in the community when, when needing recovery. And so then such a shame that, as you say, Natalie, that they're locked out or they're, they're overlooked perhaps when large grant makers are like larger grant makers or government for that matter are handing out funding to organizations for that kind of support that those community organizations wouldn't get a look in because if I heard right, they're too small, they're too far away, perhaps they can't tick the right box. And so, you know, there's a lot of reliance, then is that right on, on sort of larger not for profit organizations, larger NGOs, she would probably be better to call them that, who would go in, but wouldn't have that that trust in the community.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're right. Um, And it's not through a lack of will or desire for those organisations to be part of it, but it's just in the, you know, the intensity of a response to a disaster that often, yeah, the formalised system kicks in and these organisations, as you say, their scale, their size, their distance. um, And they're, fluidity in a way, because they're community-led, um, you know, they're not always really formal structures, it means that they're not always part of the formal system. And that's, we understand the difficulty and the, the complexity of that, but we also think that it's important. And inevitably, they are part of the process and the recovery. It's just about, you know, it would be better, I think, if they were resourced more effectively.
2: Fundamentally That's what it's about, for them to actually play a more active role. As you're speaking on envisaging this is the social capital that we often hear about and talk about, but it's quite invisible. So through this study, what have you learned and what's become evident around this social capital in local communities and what needs to happen to retain that?
0: One of the questions that I really um, was keen on learning the answers to was about what would happen if your organisation didn't exist in your community and the responses to that in the survey are really powerful you know that what would happen if those organizations weren't there is literally the social capital would erode they are the glue they they literally make things happen and and so i think what we learned is that there is it is possible to place a real value on these organisations. It isn't just soft. You know, there's often talked about soft infrastructure. It's actually not. It's actually crucial. The economic contribution is enormous. If we think about input of time alone to making things happen, management of infrastructure, it's enormous. Uh, We think about those committees and volunteers who are running all the, you know, recreational facilities, the halls, um, the arts, you know, vibrancy of a town. We think about all the, you know, when you walk into a rural town and there's so many beautiful things to look at. That's all volunteer, you know, not all, but largely volunteer run. So, you know, when we're thinking about the the value of that, I think that's what this report has enabled, um, a quantified measure of of sorts. Um and it's the it is the intersections of that economic contribution with the social contribution um and the you know the social cohesion. It's about placemaking, really, and it's about if we think about the trajectory for regional Australia um, and people wanting to move to regional Australia, these places need to be really vibrant. They need to be strong. They need to have really solid service systems and you know, built environment, transport linkages, all the things that make places possible to live well in. And these organisations are really, I think, at the crux of making that
2: happen. And of course, that's what has happened through the pandemic, isn't it, that there's been a incredible migration from the cities into regional areas what and rural areas, of course. What is that now looking like for the organisations you're speaking about? But more broadly, what was it like for people living in rural and regional Australia as a result of that?
0: So I think there's a a real sense of it being a double-edged sword at the moment. We want growth, and I think there's an absolute acknowledgement that For rural and regional areas to be more sustainable and to attract the type of investment that is needed, population is part of that answer. You know, it comes down to economics a lot of the time and so you need the numbers to warrant the kind of investment that's needed at times. And so there's that, but my sense is that the move uh, has happened at a time when we're not all ready and the infrastructure's not actually ready. And so the sentiment and the biggest themes that we hear about are housing pressure and workforce pressure. So the housing supply is just not there and the development supply is not going to catch up anytime soon. Um, And, of course, there's the the, uh, opportunity around sustainable development as well, sustainable housing and affordable housing. Um, But literally there are no rentals available in the majority of regional towns. Housing prices have gone through the roof and local people, in some cases, being pushed out of the market. So that's really challenging. We've got younger people who are not able to stay sometimes in their communities. Um, my sense is that there's there's a um, trickle out of people into more rural areas, uh, out of the sort of more sort of populated areas, and that is placing additional pressure on those areas. So you've got this kind of knock-on effect of the smaller areas have got even less infrastructure, um, less housing, et cetera. So there's, there's opportunity in all of it, but we just really need to think about the structural issues and we need to be really um, accelerating the, the focus on how to support these um, challenges. The other one is, of course, around workforce, So, and that has come through in the heartbeat study quite strongly as well. Both from a workforce supply perspective, there's a lot of skilled jobs out there. The Regional Australia Institute has done some great research on this. There's a hot market for jobs, you know, for workers in regional Australia, but, you know, they can't get them. They're well-paying, good jobs, and people just can't move there, and it is directly linked to the housing issue. You know, people could go if there were places to live, and that there's this constant cycle there. And then there are challenges around just the the core infrastructure of systems and services, transport linkages, et cetera. So the places that have really good trade lines into the city, good digital connectivity, all of those sort of tick boxes are absolutely booming and going through the roof, and that's where we're seeing the greatest pressure. And then other areas are on a different trajectory but are still experiencing the saturation of people coming in. So it's, I think... It's timely, but gosh, there's a lot of work to do. And again, these these local organisations, you know, they've got ideas. They've got knowledge about how things can happen in their region. They've often got plans that have been sitting there for years about what they want to do. So we need to just
2: get behind them and activate. Yes. So what are you calling for from policymakers and large grant makers? What would you like to see done?
0: So the very clear call to action from the respondents, is that funders need to be more flexible and need to simplify their processes and need to focus on funding the organisations, not just the projects. There's a a lot of talk about organisational capacity building and funding, you know, funding what it takes, paying what it takes, and that's a really positive direction in philanthropy in particular. It's probably not trickling through the whole sector and I think there's a real... There's like a mindset shift needed around valuing people and valuing organisations rather than just project to project funding and that's what's really been called for by the respondents to the survey. It's fund us. Yes, projects are great and we want to do these things but at the end of the day it's the people that are driving this and we need extra support and we need training and we need capacity building. And if, we, if you invest in us, we will get the job done that we want to get done. So that's one big one and FRRR is working on that and I know a lot of other foundations are. The other is just really simplifying the processes and, you know, moving the narrative of having high trust in not-for-profit organisations into practice and expressing that through the processes that they are asked to go through. And I think the other is really around, from our perspective, at the risk of, you know, repeating myself, but Nauseam really putting these organisations as part of, the authorising environment. You know, if we're talking about development of communities, if we're talking about the future of regional Australia, we need these organisations and these types of community leaders to have a voice in that. And for policy makers, that's difficult, but I think we can offer tools through platforms like the SEA Data Platform and like this survey findings that can actually help those voices to be used and actually put into the decision-making processes. And I think that will go a long way if we can do that.
1: I'd really like to ask you, Natalie, about what the future looks like for some of these rural or regional communities in the event that they really do get the investment in the infrastructure that you're saying that these communities need if they're going to be accommodating, for example, the, the migration of people from the, uh, from the city centers, from the urban centers out into these regions. Do you find that as, these, as, as more rural or regional communities grow, um, you know, well, when they get that infrastructure investment, uh, perhaps the population grows, the economic um, outlook uh, lifts, perhaps. Do you find that um, the, the character of that community changes and that perhaps some of those local backbone organizations, you know, wind up with a, almost maybe a diminished significance, more, more like the kind of um, role that they might play, uh, you know, in, in sort of urban center communities?
0: That's a really good question, Adam. I love that question. So I think it comes down to a range of things and it is fundamentally about the culture of a place, about the leadership skills, and it's about shared collective future planning and setting. And so communities that have done really well with this kind of change have actually looked at it through the perspective of, at embracing change and reimagining a sustainable future. And the reality is that if we just keep going the way we are, we will have no more people to keep running these organisations. We actually have to evolve. We just do. And that's really hard. Change is hard, especially when we're thinking about, you know, the traditional ways. You know, we've always done it this way and that has worked for a long time, so why would we do it differently? And that's kind of sometimes the narrative of committees that have, you know, just gotten along and... The urgency is not there, but the fact is over time people come along and they've got different ideas, they've got different visions, they've got different skills. And so the opportunity, you know, the communities that have done this well are ones that have seen that as an opportunity and really brought that into those existing organisations to say, well, we play this role in our community. Our community needs this going forward. What's our part in this and what do we do together as we have new skills coming into the community And the challenge amounts that is about how not to be challenged by change or how not to be fearful of that change. And that can be, that's the cultural side, that's about leadership and that's about, you know, how you actually take a community on that journey rather than feeling like it's being imposed on you and like you just have to react and put up with it. And that's, you know, you get both of those and everything in between in communities that are experiencing a transition of sorts. And that's from the big scale in terms of major economic transition through to, you know, smaller things where you, you have a population profile changing, for example. But it, I think it does come down to the ability of the local leadership base to work and to transfer leadership, which is complex and actually needs a lot of coaching and support if it's not there in an abundance. It's not always. We shouldn't assume that we've got the capabilities to do that. Everyone can have the capability. It's supported. So it's a great question. And I think it's, you know, that's
1: the stuff we need to be focusing on rather than just thinking about what still needs to be fixed and replaced. So there's been so many conversations, I think, taking place recently about the change that regional communities are encountering, the change that we're all encountering, really. Um, you know, we find new and more efficient ways of operating. I think that was one of the key findings from the report as well. Was that many organizations had found more efficient ways of operating and had had more of a focus as a result of recent events—drought, um, dr- uh, fire, flood, plague—on um, the community, more focus on the on the needs of the community. So is it? I mean, you know, we don't want to we don't want to rely on crisis, for example, as the motivator for uh, for renewed urgency and rejuvenation, but. Um, Perhaps there is uh, some silver lining to to that in the regional context.
0: And there was a healthy enough response of that sort in the survey. And crisis does inevitably bring opportunity, doesn't it? You know, as much as we don't want crisis, it inevitably requires different thinking and it requires different people to step in. And I think the pandemic has been interesting in that all the external input has kind of been taken out of sorts. You know, communities have just been isolated and within our own bubbles, although connected digitally. So it's been a really interesting time in terms of that inward facing opportunity. And it's right, people have turned inward and they've looked after each other and they've had time to think and process. We've heard from a lot of organisations that have had time to think about their next plan or to think about what their skills are and where they want to head or invest in that digital capability and capacity that they haven't had and they hadn't had the ability to really do because they have been so busy running everything. It's definitely, I think, going to be interesting to see how community groups come out the other side. And they're clearly, you know, there are, it's not an equitable story. There are different organisations at different stages and communities affected very differently across the country. But generally, I think there is some sentiment that people have been able to focus in a little bit more and reflect and reset, so to speak.
2: And it occurs to me as well that the road to recovery is is long. It's occurring in different places in different ways. I've heard a lot about hypervigilance in communities, with people thinking about the f- the bushfires or floods or other natural disasters as well as the pandemic. When we transition into thriving communities, we hear a lot about the conditions for that, including, and you spoke about it earlier, infrastructure that works, that can support living well in a place. We also hear a lot about the role of collaboration and you spoke about leadership a moment ago, as well as this idea of multi-level governance and innovation. Could you help us understand what is multi-level governance?
0: The way I would think about that is that it's about dispersed leadership and that it is more about just what I've been describing, I think, through this conversation, authorising different types of leadership and different types of expertise around decision making. And so I would think about it as inclusive governance structure, where you've got a relative and appropriate respect for the different parts of a system that play and need to be balanced and need to be at the table in different ways. And we think about local government or regional development bodies or water management, land management, etc. cetera. You, you need everyone there, but not everyone, you know, no player should have more or less. So, and it, I think, you know, that's the great thing about that concept is it's about actually recognising and attributing the knowledge and the capability within a community and the, you know, where the formal and authorised roles sit and where the informal, yet no less authorised roles and functions
2: sit so, the role of the heartbeat study, and I agree with you very much so, this is really about helping to give greater information and an evidence base to strengthen those grassroots organizations, those community organizations to have a seat at the table, to have more power in that authorizing system. And you've made the data available through our platform, as well as advocating for organizations to use data and build that evidence base for strengthening their story. How do you see this playing out uh, as a tool for community organisations to s- be part of that authorising environment?
0: Yes, yeah, so we, we could have gone about this work in any number of ways. It could have been a storytelling initiative. It could have been all sorts of things, but we chose a data-led approach because we think that, well, data is a really important way of telling stories and it adds to the qualitative narrative. And it, it also, I think, it equips groups with something that is almost a universal language. It's something that talks to other systems. And so it's something that can translate. Um, and it kind of equalises because it does add an evidence base that is valid, I suppose. And so, you know, we hope that this will be used by organizations and local communities to help tell their story if they're putting in funding applications we hope that they will say this is a an evidence base that says this kind of thing is needed and our organization needs it because XYZ or we hope that if they're putting in submissions to policy um, development that they can talk about it and use this data set as well to talk about the issues that align with their experience in their communities. Now, we used it in the recent regional telecommunications review. We had some interim findings and we were able to draw upon this data and to inform that in terms of what the digital um, inequality experience was in regional communities. So it's I think it's practical and, yeah, it's a bit of an equaliser of sorts because it, it does uh, speak a universal language around all of the different tables that these organisations could be at.
1: Yeah, it's that's such an amazing asset and such a great thing to kick off. And um hopefully we'll see the repetition of that study over time and and the way that those attitudes are shifting and changing. From what you've seen so far from your experience with that study, um previous studies as well that you've been involved with and the kinds of responses that you've got back, what are some of the what are some of the lessons that you've learned? Some of the takeaways that you've had about the process of creating this study? And what kind of questions do you think you'll maybe think about including next time around that uh, have been inspired perhaps by what you've seen so far?
0: That's a good question. I think the tool as, a, as itself is really useful. I think the framing of the questions was a really interesting process, thinking about, well, what's actually useful and practical and how do we you know, – These things can sometimes be um, you know, the language and the terminology can be a bit distant from the people that we're actually trying to hear from. So that was a big piece. And we'll be trying to get some feedback in terms of whether that, you know, cut through and got the right responses in terms of, you know, where people were at. But, you know, for for us, we were thinking about it from a, you know, if I'm the person in the community, what are both the strengths and the weaknesses of what's been happening? So we really were mindful of not framing it around a deficit and around a you know, crisis kind of narrative. But we also, so we recognise the good things have been happening and how do we actually use this survey to help tell that story as well. Um, so that's kind of in terms of design, I think important. Sometimes these types of um, pieces, you know, it's about managing bias and it's about managing the risk of um, leading a particular line of um, thinking or a potential outcome. And that was a, you know, a challenge in terms of us kind of having a, a pretty solid understanding of what we thought was happening um, versus trying to remain open to learning new things. So that was the value of having someone like Certain Matters designing it. Um, but the challenge I think is capturing the qualitative data. So we've got reams and reams of commentary and it's so rich and amazing. And so the challenge will be how we actually pull that out. And that's I think if we were when we if and when we do it again we'll be thinking about how we can build in some tools to capture that in a um, more easily digestible way. uh, Because at the moment it's gonna take a while to get through. (laughs) So we're working with the sort of the quantitative stuff first and then we'll extract that. But that they'd be my, my first thoughts.
2: I couldn't agree with you more, Nat, about the power and the importance of data for storytelling and for advocacy for what's needed. A survey like this is incredibly important to highlight and make visible the issues and the opportunities. And then, of course, you know, being able to use public data to then identify what's really needed. I think the other part that we're very strongly passionate about, really committed to, is encouraging data sharing between governments with communities. So, data sharing is very much on the agenda across Australia with National Cabinet as a result of the multiple crisis, where governments are sharing data between each other and agencies within states are sharing data within each other. I think the big next opportunity for communities to really get that set at the table and to drive forward that community-led decision-making authorising environment is to also get information that they need so they can make better decisions in the crisis and through recovery as things continue to evolve. And I think when governments ad- acknowledge that that rich resource should also be shared, uh, then we have a much better way forward for communities to be data-led, data-driven and have that community voice. Fantastic. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Nan, is there anything else you'd like to share? I don't think so. We're just very excited to get this out there
0: and to be, you know, able to work with you guys and your team. Um, yeah, I, I really hope that it takes off does some good.
2: Likewise, congratulations on the the Heartbeat Study and all of the work. We're really behind it and look forward to hearing what the outcomes will be. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us
2: out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials.
1: Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time you uh-huh.